I'm willing to believe that what's happening on the African continent has a direct bearing on what happens to you and me in this country, and the degree to which they get independence and strength and recognition on that continent is inseparable from the degree to which we get independence and strength and recognition on this continent. I hope before the day is over to clarify what I mean by that. But first, I would like to point out that since it's my understanding that most of you are training to be future leaders in the community, not only the community, but the country and in the world, some advice that I would give is that whenever you think you're going to occupy a position of responsibility in the future, one of the best areas in which you can train yourself is never to accept images that have been create, created for you by someone else. It's always better to form the habit of learning how to see things for yourself and listen to things for yourself, think for yourself, and then you're in a better position to judge for yourself. We're living at a time we're living at a time when image making has become a science. And someone can create certain images and then use that image to twist your mind and lead you right up a blind path. An example, a few weeks ago I was on a plane traveling from Algiers to Geneva. And there were two Americans sitting beside me, both white, one a male and one and the other a female. Uh, I had met the male in the airport and we had struck up a conversation. He was an interpreter uh, who worked for the United Nations and was based in Geneva. The lady was with the American Embassy in one of the in one part of Al Al Algeria. So we conversed for about 40 minutes between Algiers and Geneva. A nice human conversation. I don't think they were trying to be white and they weren't trying to prove that they weren't white. They weren't particularly trying to prove anything. It was just a conversation between three human beings. I certainly wasn't trying to make them think I wasn't black, and uh, I, it, just, it just didn't come into it. So after we had had this quiet, objective, friendly, sociable, and very informative conversation for about 40 minutes, the lady looked at my briefcase and said, uh, I want to ask you a personal question. She said, what kind of name could you have, last name could you have that begins with X? This was bugging her. And uh, I said, well, that's it, X, like that. So she said, uh, well, what's your first name? I said, Malcolm. So she waited about 10 minutes. And she said, you're not Malcolm X. <laughs> and I said, yes. She said, but you're not what I was looking for. And I told her right then and there the danger of believing what she hears someone else say, or believing what she reads someone else write, and not keeping herself in a position to weigh, see things, and hear things, and weigh them for her for herself. Last week when I was in England at Oxford University, we had a debate at the Oxford Union. And before the debate, I was with several of the students. We were discussing a variety of things for a couple hours at a dinner. 
And at the end, toward the end of the dinner, a girl uh, that had been one of the diners pointed out. She said, you know, you're just not what I was looking for. So I asked her, what were you looking for? I knew what she was looking for. She was looking for the horns that had been created by the press. Uh, and those horns mean she was she was looking for someone who was out to kill all white people, who was a segregationist, a rabble-rouser, an irrational, an extremist, subversive, seditious, someone who couldn't hold a conversation with just anyone. This is what she was looking for, because she was looking for something whose image she only knew from what she had read by a very biased press, a press that had perfected image-making to a science. And then they use these images to make people love whom they will and hate whom they will. Uh, not based upon what the people themselves discover for themselves, but based strictly upon the image that the press wants to create and then project to the world. So in both instances, they didn't see the horns. Perhaps the horns were there, but they were well hidden. So I take that, uh, I just take time to mention that because it's very dangerous for you and me to form the habit of reading, of uh, believing anything completely about anyone or any situation when we only have the press as our source of information. It's always better if you don't want to uh, be completely in the dark to read it, but don't come to a conclusion until you have a opportunity to do some personal, first-hand investigating for yourself. And if you ever are going to hold a position of leadership, uh, along, which go, along with which goes a great deal of responsibility, my advice to you would be just that, to be very careful about letting others create images for you. Always examine for yourself. The, the American press, in fact the FBI used press, to create almost any kind of image they want of anyone on the local scene. And then you have other police agencies of an international stature that's able to use the world press to create images of anyone whom they want or anything that they want. And if the press is able to project someone in the image of an extremist, no matter what that person says or does from then on is considered by the public as an act of extremism. No matter how good it is, because it's done by this person who has been projected as an extremist, no matter what it is, or how good it is, or how positive it is, or how constructive it is, the, the people who have been misled by the press uh, have a mental block, and the press knows this. If the press can project someone as subversive, or a group as subversive, no matter what this group does, it looks upon as subversive. They could run and save someone from drowning in the middle of the Hudson. But it's still, the act is looked upon with suspicion. Because the, the press has been used to create suspicion toward that certain image. If a person is projected by the press in an image that's an image of irresponsibility, then no matter how responsible that person's actions may be, the people look upon that act as an act, of ir uh, as an irresponsible act. And I point these things out especially for you and me those of us who are trying to come from behind and not get ahead, but at least get even. 
Uh, if we aren't aware, we'll find that all these modern methods of trickery that they have perfected to a science will be used and we will be maneuvered into thinking that we're getting freedom or thinking that we're making progress when actually we'll, we will be going back. Likewise, if they can project you in the image or project someone in, in a violent image or in the image of someone who goes for violence, and you accept that image, then whatever that person becomes involved in, as far as you're concerned, he believes in violence. He could save a baby from the path of a car, but you don't see someone saving the baby from the path of a car. You see someone who believes in violence. And these methods have been used very skillfully by the power structure, the national power structure, as well as the international power structure. And one of the things that you and I, as an oppressed people, should be on guard against, as I said, is to be very careful about letting anyone paint our images for us. The, the, the world press, as well as the American press, can make the victim of a crime look like the criminal, and can make the criminal himself look like he's the victim. You don't think that this is possible for someone to do that to your mind. But all you have to do is take the recent example, example of the Congo, of, of what happened in the Congo. The world press projected uh, the scene in the Congo as one wherein the people who were the victims of the crime were made to appear as if they were criminals. And the ones who were the actual criminals were made to appear that they were the victims. The press did this. And, and by the press doing it, it made it almost impossible for the American public or the world public to anal analyze the Congo situation with clarity and, and keep it in its proper perspective. An example. If you notice, uh, here we had African villages in the Congo that had no kind of uh, air force whatsoever. They were completely without defense against air attack, and yet there were planes dropping bombs on these African villages. The people were defenseless. The bombs were destroying women, they were destroying children, they were destroying babies. But there was no great outcry here in America against such an inhuman act because uh, the press very skillfully made it look like a humanitarian project. And they made it look like a humanitarian project by referring to the pilots that were dropping the bombs on these innocent and defenseless Africans as American trains. And as soon as they put the word American in there, that was supposed to lend it some kind of respectability or legality. And uh, they call them American trains anti-Castro Cuban pilots. And since Castro is a, a word that's almost like a curse, the fact that they were anti-Castro pilots made whatever they were doing an act of humanitarianism. But still, you, could, you can't overlook the fact that it was American-trained, anti-Castro Cuban pilots, no matter what they were doing, no, no matter who they were, they were dropping bombs on villages in Africa that had no defense against bombs whatsoever. But they called this an act of humanitarianism. And the public was made to accept it as an act of humanitarianism, and I have to point this out because it's an example of how when the planes come from America and the bombs come from America and the pilots come from America, 
no matter whether or not they become involved in mass murder, the press again can maneuver your mind and manipulate your mind to make you think that that mass murder is some kind of humanitarian project, simply by making the image of the criminal appear to be the image of a humanitarian, and the image of the victim is made to look like he's a criminal. So it's very good to keep this in mind, because you can take it a step further. One of the principal images in that particular scene over there is a man named Shambi, who's a murderer. Actually, he's a murderer. He, he murdered the rightful prime minister of the Congo. This cannot be denied. The rightful prime minister of the Congo was Patrice Lumumba. Now, the one who is responsible for having murdered him in cold blood in the world over was taken and put over the Congo as its premier by the United States government. And this gave him some kind of image of respectability because America sanctioned him. And not only uh, did she sanction him, she supplied him with sufficient funds wherein he could then go to South Africa and import uh, hired killers, mercenaries they call them. But a mercenary is a hired killer. A mercenary is not someone who goes to war for patriotic reasons. A mercenary is someone who kills in cold blood because he's paid to. So this man, Shambi, who was a murderer, hired by the United States and placed in a position of authority over the Congo, uh, showed his nature by what he did with American money. He went out and hired some more killers. But because he was supported by America, he wasn't looked upon as a murderer or a killer. Because of the money that he was using to hire these killers from South Africa, they weren't looked upon as what they actually were. Because the American press, again, gave them an image of respectability. An image of respectability. Now these mercenaries, under Shondi's uh, sanction and support, were shooting African women, African children, African babies, as well as African men, indiscriminately, without any consumption whatsoever. No one got upset over the uh, loss of, the, of thousands of Congolese lives. They only got upset when the lives of a few whites were at stake. Because when the lives of the whites were at stake, immediately the press again brought your sentiment to bear by referring to these whites as innocent uh, hostages, as nuns and priests and missionaries, and it gave them a, an image that you would sympathize with. I must point this out because it shows you how tricky the press can be. The press can make you not have any sympathy whatsoever for the deaths of thousands of people who look just like yourself. But at the same time, they make tears roll down your face over the few, over the loss of a few lives that don't look anything like yourself. They manipulate, manipulate your feelings and manipulate your So all I say, I only use this to show the importance of you and me learning to think for ourselves, and especially think beyond what we read in the press. Because someone can take a press, a newspaper, and make you walk backward and you swear you're walking forward. They can say in the headlines that the sun is out, and you walk around out there in the rain without an umbrella soaked and won't think you're wet because the paper says the sun is out. <laughs> they take a, a very, they give an angelic image to a devil. They give a humanitarian image to a murder. 
to a murderer. They make the victim look like the criminal, and the criminal look like the victim. So my advice to you is, at the outstart, if any of you, at any time, think that you'll ever be placed in a position of responsibility, once you are placed in that position of responsibility, you owe it to others as well as to yourself. Careful about letting others make your mind up for you. You have to learn how to see for yourself, hear for yourself, and think for yourself, and then judge for yourself. <laughs> Secondly, I would like to say this concerning my own personal self, <laughs> whose image they projected in their own life. I'm against any form of racism, any form. I fight against racism no matter where it is. I don't believe in fighting against racism uh, non-violently. I know you're against racism, too. We're all against racism. The only difference between you and me is you want to fight racism and racists non-violently and lovingly, and I'll fight them the way they fight me. Whatever weapon they use, that's the way I use. This is the only difference between us. We're all against it. We're all against our enemy. But some of you have been taught to love your enemy and forgive him and submit to his brutality with no struggle. And I don't go for that. I go for talking the kind of language that he talks. I believe that a racist only knows one language. And you can't communicate with a person unless you use the language that they use. If a man is speaking French, you can talk German all night long. You won't reach him. He doesn't even know what you're talking about. You have to find out what kind of language does he use. And when you find out what kind of language he uses, you know what kind of language he understands, and then you put it to him in the language that he understands. And in this country where you and I, as is proven in the situation in Mississippi yesterday, where they brutally and in cold blood murder three persons, three humans, and then the whole world knows who is guilty, and they have the audacity to pretend to be reaching out and arresting these persons, knowing when they arrest them that they're going to turn them loose. Why, I say this, these men don't understand that kind of language. They don't use the law. They don't recognize the law. They are law men. And they don't respect your and my right where the law is concerned. They don't understand that language. So when you come to them in that language, you're wasting your time. You don't even communicate. You're talking where they are. There's only one language they know. And like I say, I'm for peace. And I'm against violence. But I'm not against using it to protect our people from the violence that they're the victims of in this country or anywhere else on this earth. I'm a Muslim, which means my religion is Islam. I believe in Allah. I believe in all of the prophets. Whoever represented God on this earth, I believe what Muslims believe. Prayer, fasting, charity, and the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, Mecca, which I've been fortunate to make four or five times. I've been fortunate to make twice, but while I was there, I went on into Mecca four or five different times. I believe in the brotherhood of man, all men. 
But I don't believe in brotherhood with anybody who doesn't want brotherhood with me. This is our only difference. I believe in treating people right. But I'm not going to waste my time trying to treat someone right who doesn't know how to return that treatment. This is the only difference between you and me. You believe in treating everybody right, whether they put a rope around your neck or, or whether they put you in a grave. Well, I can't. My belief isn't that strong. I believe in the brotherhood of man. But I think that anybody who wants to lynch a Negro is not qualified for that brotherhood. And I don't look to, I don't put forth any effort to get them into that brotherhood. This is probably the only difference. You want to save him, and I don't. Despite the fact that I believe in the brotherhood of man as a Muslim, in the religion of Islam, there's one fact also that I can't overlook, and that's I'm an Afro-American. And by being an Afro-American, we have problems that go well beyond religion. We have problems that a religious organization in itself can't, understand, can't uh, solve. And we have, a, uh, we have problems that no one organization can solve or no one leader can solve. We have a problem that's going to take the combined effort of every leader and every organization if we're going to get to a solution. I believe that. And for that reason, uh, I don't believe that as a Muslim that it's possible for me to bring my religion into any kind of discussion with people who are not Muslim without causing more division, dissension, and animosity and hostility, and we will only be involved in a self-defeating uh, action. So, based upon that, there's a group of us that formed, formed an organization, besides being Muslim, we have uh, gotten together and formed an organization that has nothing to do with religion at all. And it's known as the Organization of Afro-American Unity. And in this organization, we involve ourselves in the complete struggle uh, of the uh, Afro-American in this country, and uh, our purpose in becoming involved in a, with a non-religious group that gives us the latitude to use any means necessary in order to bring an end to the injustices that we are confronted by. I believe in any means necessary. I believe that the injustice that we have suffered and are suffering and will continue to suffer will never be brought to a halt as long as we put ourselves in a straitjacket uh, when we are fighting against those injustices. And for that reason, those of us in the organization of Afro-American unity have adopted as our slogan by any means necessary. And we feel that we're justified. Whenever someone is uh, treating you in a criminal way, an illegal way, in, a, in an immoral way, why, you are well within your rights to use anything at your disposal to bring an end to that unjust, illegal, and immoral condition that you're being victimized by. I believe that. And for this reason, and for this reason, we try and be as peaceful and as law-abiding and as legal and as respectable as possible. But at the same time, I believe that it's time for black people in this country to obey the law. But at the same time, when anybody uh, is breaking the law, and breaking you in my neck and cutting off your in my life is the government itself, which is supposed to be our protector, shows that it is unable or unwilling to protect us, then we have we have to band together and protect ourselves. And when we do it like that when we do it like that, we find we'll, we will find that we'll get more respect and we'll be farther down the road toward freedom 
toward recognition and toward respect as human beings. But as long as we dilly-dally and try and appear that we're more moral than anybody else by taking the beating without fighting back, why people will continue to refer to us as very moral persons and very well-disciplined persons, but at the same time we'll be just as far back a hundred years from now as we are right as we are today. So I believe that fighting against those who fight against us is the best course of action in any situation. Not fighting against anybody, but fighting against anybody who fights against us. And if the, again, if the government doesn't want Negroes fighting against anybody who fights against us, then the government should do its job. The government shouldn't put the weight on us. If the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi is criminal and carrying on criminal activities to the point of murder against black people, then I think that if black people are men, human beings, the same as anybody else, you and I should have the right to do the same thing in defense of our lives and our property that all other human beings on this earth do in defense of their lives and in defense of their, their property. And that is to talk the language that the Klan understands. So I must emphasize that we are dealing with a powerful enemy, I'm, and, and, and again, I'm not an anti-American, I'm not anti-American or un-American. I think there are plenty of good people in America, but there are also plenty of bad people in America. And the bad ones are the ones who seem to have all the power and be in these positions to block things that you and I need. So because this is the situation, uh, you and I have to reserve the right to do what is necessary to bring an end to that situation. And it doesn't mean that I am one who would advocate violence, but at the same time I'm not against using violence in self-defense. In self-defense. Not initiating violence, but Violence in self-defense. And I don't even call it violence when it's in self-defense. It's self-defense. I call it intelligence. <laughs> so now, what does the, the African, what impact or effect does the African revolution have upon you and me? How does it fit? Number one, if you go back to 1959, prior to 1959, many of us, didn't want to be identified with Africa in any way, not even indirectly or remotely. The best way to curse one of us out was call us an African, be get insulted. That's a drag. But if you notice, since 1959 and in more recent years, that's changing. It's changing among us subconsciously faster than we even realize. And the reason, that, uh, the reason for this change is, prior to 1959, the African image was not created by Africa. The image of Africa wasn't created by Africa. The image of Africa was created by someone who was an enemy to Africa. Africa was dominated by Europeans, by European powers, by Britain, France, and Belgium, Portugal, and some of these other places up there in Europe. And these Europeans had gotten together in conjunction with America and created a very negative image of Africa and had projected this negative image abroad. Negative? in that they projected Africa as a jungle, a place filled with animals, savages, and cannibals. The image of Africa was made hateful, and the image of the African was made hateful, so that there were 22 million of us in America of African origin, African descent, African ancestry, who actually shunned Africa because 
The image that was projected to us of Africa was a hateful image, a negative image. And we didn't realize that as soon as we were made to hate Africa and the image of the African, we also hated the image of ourselves. It was impossible for us to hate the African and the image of Africa without, without also hating the image of ourselves. You can't hate the roots and not hate the tree. You can't hate Africa, the land where you and I originate, without ending up hating your and myself. And the man knew that. He did it, he did it so skillfully and so trickily that uh, as soon as uh, we begin to hate Africa and the Africans, we begin to hate. And all of this hatred that was done uh, was, a, was, a, was a kind of hatred that had skillfully been taught to us without us even realizing. We begin to hate ourselves. Now, you know, they accuse us of teaching hate. What is the most inhuman or illegal or immoral or, or immoral? For a man to teach you to hate your enemy or a man to skillfully maneuver you into hating yourself? Well, I think to teach a man to hate himself is much more criminal than teaching him to hate someone else. And look at you. Who taught you to hate yourself? If you say we are hate teachers, you tell me who taught you hate so skillfully and so completely until we have been maneuvered today so that we don't even want to be what we actually are. We want to be somebody else. We want to be someone else. We want to be something else. Many of us want to be somewhere else. Then after 1959, Africa began to get its independence. And as these African states got their independence, they began to change the image of the African. They've gotten a position to put image abroad. And the image began to swing from negative to positive. And to the same degree that the African image began to change from negative to positive, if you study the behavior pattern of the Afro-American, his image also during the same period began to change from negative to positive. His behavior began to change from negative to positive. His objective began to change from negative to positive to the same degree that the behavior and the objectives, uh, the objectives of the African changed from negative to positive. They had a direct bearing. No, they had a direct bearing upon the attitude that we here in America begin to develop toward each other and also toward the man. And I don't have to say what man. There were elements in the State Department who began to worry about this changing image because they knew that uh, to the same degree that the image of Africa changed, your and my image of ourselves began to change. As Africa became militant and uncompromising, you and I became militant and uncompromising. And even the most bourgeois, Uncle Tom, Afro-American, was happy when he'd hear about the Mau Mau. Because, yes, he was happy when he heard it. He wouldn't say so openly, because it wasn't a sense to identify with it in some quarter. In other quarters, it was. But all of this uncompromising and militant action on the part of the Africans uh, created a tendency among our people in this country to be the same way. And they were having this effect upon us, but many of us didn't realize. There was a subconscious effect, an, an, an unconscious effect, but it had its effect. And as I say, there were elements in the State Department that became worried about this, that racist element in the State Department. And you're out of your mind if you don't think that there's a racist element in the State Department. I'm not saying that everybody in the State Department is a racist, but I'm saying they sure got some in there, and a whole lot of them in there. 
And they got them in powerful positions in there. And this what is the element that became worried about the changing Negro mood and the changing Negro behavior. And especially if that mood and that behavior became one of what they call violence. And by violence, they only mean when a black man protects himself against the, uh, uh, the attacks of a white man. This is what they mean by violence. They don't mean what you mean. Uh, because if, if they're against violence, they don't even use the word violence until you, they, until someone gives the impression that you're about to explode. When, when it comes time for a black man to explode, they call it violence. But white people can be exploding against black people all day long. It's never called violence. Because I even have some of you come to me and ask me, am I for violence? I'm the victim of violence, and you're the victim of violence. And you've been so victimized by it, you can't recognize it for what it is today. Their the fear was that the changing image of the African would have the tendency to change your and my image much too much. And they knew that as the image of Africa changed, you and I tended to identify with Africa where we didn't formally do so. You and I tended to sympathize with Africa where we didn't formally do so. And their fear was that sympathy and that uh, identity would eventually develop into a sort of an allegiance for uh, African hopes and aspirations above and beyond America's hopes and aspirations. And so they had to do something to uh, create a division among the Afro-American or between the Afro-American and the African so that you and I could, so that you and I and they could not get together and coordinate our efforts and make faster progress than we have been making up to that time. They don't mind you struggling for freedom as long as you struggle according to their rules. As long as you let them tell you how to struggle, they go for your struggle. As long as they let you let, you let them tell you how much to, how much not, you know, to exert too much energy, then they go for your uh, type of struggle. But as soon as you come to one of them who's supposed to be for your freedom and tell him you're for freedom by any means necessary, he gets away from it. He's for his freedom by any means necessary, but he'll never go along with you trying to get your freedom by any means necessary. United States history is the history of a country that does whatever it wants to by any means necessary. It looks out for its interests by any means necessary. But when it comes to your and my interests, then all of the means become limited. We can't go along with that. We say what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If we're going to be nonviolent, then let America become nonviolent. Let her pull her troops out of Saigon and pull her troops out of, out of the Congo and, and pull back all her troops everywhere. And then we will, then we will see that she's a non-violent country. And we're living in a non-violent society. But until they get non-violent themselves, you're out of your mind to get non-violent. That's all I say on that. I'm for peace. But I don't see how any black people can be at peace before the war is over. And you haven't even won a battle yet. If I have to follow a general who's fighting for my freedom, and the enemy begins to pin peace medals upon him before I've even gotten my freedom, I'm afraid I'll have to find another general. Because it's impossible for a general to be at peace when his people don't yet know peace. And it's possible, it's impossible to give out peace medals 
when the people who are oppressed don't have any peace. The only one who has peace is the man that's at the top. And I don't think black people should be at peace in any way. There should be no peace on earth for anybody until there's peace also for us. So after 1959, I'm getting right to the end of it. After 1959, the, uh, another thing came into the picture. The, the African nations began to get very nationalistic and very militant and very uncompromising in their search for freedom and put the European powers on the spot. Uh, they were blocked. They couldn't stay on the African continent any longer. It's like someone who's in a football game. When he's, uh, or a basketball game, when he's trapped or boxed in, he doesn't throw the ball away, but he has to pass it to someone who's in the clear. And this is the same thing that the European powers did on the African continent. They were colonial powers. They had the image of colonial power. And they were trapped. They were boxed in. The Africans didn't want them anymore. So they had to pass the ball to one of their partners who was in the clear. And the only partner that they had in the clear was Uncle Sam. And Uncle Sam caught the ball. He's been carrying it ever since. You've been carrying this ball ever since, and all you have to do, all you have to do is go to the African continent, travel from one end of it to the other, and you'll find out that the American position and influence has only replaced the position and influence of the former colonial powers, and they did it very skillfully. They knew that, uh, up, that the Africans had awakened and had become too militant for any non-African to stay on that continent against the will of the Africans. So they had to use a, a better method, a more subtle method, a friendly method, a benevolent method, a philanthropic method. method. And, uh, they had to make friends with the African. They had to make the African think that they were there to help them. So they started pretending like they wanted to help you and me over here. They came up with all these pretty uh, slogans about integration, which they haven't produced yet. They came up with uh, uh, slogans about this kind of program and that kind of program. But when you analyze it very closely, you find that they haven't produced it yet. It hasn't produced what it was supposed to produce. And it's so hard for it to produce results that when they get that much of it, it makes headlines. When they get that much progress, it makes headlines. So they, they, they went into the African continent <laughs> with, uh, with, with a new form of a missionary who went there to pose as a friend in this 20th century uh, as if he's going to help the Africans. While over here, the Afro-American is getting his head busted. He's getting dogs were, were, were being sicked on him. Not by the Ku Klux Klan, but by men in police uniform. It would be different. You wouldn't, you would, you wouldn't be so shook up if, if a Klan had his dog biting. But when you see the policeman with his dog biting you, you wonder what's happening. Because you're not breaking the law, you're trying to enforce the law. The law was handed down by the Supreme Court. They said you can go to any school you want. But when you get out there and get ready to go to school, like the law says, the law is the one sticking the police on you, or busting the upside of your head, or, or, stick, or turning the water, water hose on you, or the cattle crops. So this kind of shook the American, the Afro-American up. He wondered, was the Supreme Court really uh, in a position to say what the law of the land was, was supposed to be? Because they passed a law that they could not enforce. They passed a law that, could, that they could not implement. And I don't mean that they couldn't enforce it in New York City. They couldn't even do segregate the schools in New York City. 
And how in the world are they going to desegregate them in Mississippi and Louisiana and some of those other places? So, these were token, token moves designed to make you and me cool down just a little while longer by making us think that an honest move was being made to get a solution to the problem, or an honest effort was being made to get a solution to the problem. And then as they began to appear uh, that they were, for the black man in this country, they, ab abroad, they would blow it up, especially the USIS, US United States Information Service. Its job abroad, especially on the African continent, was to make the Africans think that you and I are living in paradise, that our problems have been solved, that the, that the Supreme Court desegregation decision put all of us in school, that the passage of the Civil Rights Bill last year solved all of our problems, and that now that Martin Luther King has gotten the Peace Prize, we're on our way to the promised land of integration. <laughs> I was over there when all of this happened, and I know how they use it. They don't use it in an objective, constructive way. They use it to trick and fool the African into thinking that they don't, uh, that their, uh, most of their time is spent loving you and me and trying to solve your and my problem with honest, uh, honest me uh, methods and that they're getting honest results. So I would like to say, in my conclusion, why we in the organization of Afro-American Unity feel that we just can't sit around and use and, and rely upon the same objectives and strategy that has been used in the past. If you go, if you study in this country uh, the so-called progress of the Afro-American, you go back to 1939, just before the war with Hitler. And most of our people were dishwashers and waiters and shoeshine boys. I don't, it doesn't make any difference how much education we have. Uh, we worked downtown in those hotels. There's bellhops. And on the, in, in, on the railroad as waiters and in the Grand Central Station as rich hats. We knew what our position was going to be even before we graduated from school prior to 1939. And in Michigan where I live, the big shot Negroes were the waiters out at the country club. Back in those days when you had a job waiting in the country club, you were rubbing elbows with the highest uh, of the white folks, and you were considered a big shot because you were rubbing elbows with the big shot. Actually, you were rubbing elbows with them while you were serving them. And uh, in those days, our people couldn't even work in the factory. In, 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 in Michigan, where all the factories are, they worked primarily shining shoes and in menial, in, at menial tasks. And then when Hitler went on the rampage, America was faced with a manpower shortage. And this is the only time you and I got a break. If you, some of you are too young to remember it, and some of you are so old you don't want to remember it. If you go back to 1939 and 40 and 41, a black man couldn't even join the Army or the Navy. They wouldn't let us join the Army or the Navy. They didn't want us in the service because they were afraid if they trained us on how to use a gun, they wouldn't have to tell us what the target was. <laughs> Only white folks and white wall, actually. And uh, uh, we were behind here, were beginning to get good jobs and some other things. So uh, <laughs> there was a manpower shortage. And uh, the Negro leaders. The 
this instance, I have to say Negro leaders. The Negro leaders got up in arms. They went to Washington and demanded that Negroes be drafted too. Really, they did. <laughs> really, they did. They did. They weren't drafting us. The Negro leader in that day, he was the same way as the Indians he is now, went, went to Washington and says that if white boys are going to die on the battlefield, we want to die too. that they started taking us into the army. And, and they wouldn't give us, put us in the area where you can handle guns. And even some of them who were in the army in those days will tell you that when they landed at the Battle of the Bulge or in Italy, they wouldn't give them bullets for their guns. They were afraid. And they had reason to be afraid because they knew what they had done to us. And I, for one, I guess I say they had reason to be afraid. Because anybody in his right mind who has had done to him what you and I have had done to us, don't give us a chance because... Well, you know, we're human. <laughs> they let us in the plant, in the defense plant. When we got in the, de in the defense plant, we began to get jobs as machinists. For the first time, we got a little skill, made a little more money. And by making a little more money, it was then and only then that we were in a position to live in a little better neighborhood. And when we moved to a little better neighborhood, we had a little better school to go to and got a little better education. This is how we came out of it. Not through someone's benevolence, and it was not through the effort on the, of, of organizations in our midst that made us go forward. It was the pressure that Uncle Sam was under. And the only time that man has let the black man go one step forward has been when outside pressure has been brought to bear upon it. It has never been for any other reason. World pressure. World pressure, economic pressure, political pressure, military pressure. When he was under pressure, he let me and you have a break. After he had defeated Hitler and got uh, Tojo uh, and the Japanese out of the way, then Stalin was on the scene and he was a threat. And it was during that period of uncertainty in this country that you and I got in a position to get a little better job, make a little more money, uh, live in a little better neighborhood, go to a little better school, and get a little better education, so that today you can think a little bit better than you could think back in those days. And I mean a little bit better. So the point that I make is, when you study the world situation, uh, and then put your and my position of progress or lack of progress during the past 20 years in this proper context, you can see that it has not been so much the effort, the internal effort alone of different organizations and different leaders that has enabled you and me to make what we think is progress. It has only been to the same degree that the, that the world itself will have pressure upon the United States that you and I have made any kind of step from here to here. But it has never been just on our own initiative. And the day that you and I recognize that, then we see the thing in its proper perspective. Because we see, looking just to Uncle Sam in Washington, D.C., to have the problem solved. And we cease looking just within America for allies in our struggle against the injustice. We begin to look at the whole problem, not as a Negro problem or an American problem, but a world problem. And when you see it in its world context, 
You look around on this earth and you find out, whereas well, as long as you keep it in the American context, you're a minority. You're the underdog. And the odds are against And you can hardly ever go forward on your own volition or of your own initiative. But when you look at it in its world context, you find that you're no longer the underdog. That the people who look like you are the most numerous. That the odds today are on their side. That the pendulum and center of power is shifting. Whereas it used to be predominantly in Europe and America, Europe, Europe and America don't hold their power anymore. Power balances are shifting. Today, Asia has power. Africa has power. Dark-skinned people in Latin America have power. Well, when you find people who look like you getting power, my suggestion is that you turn to them and make them your allies. Let them know. Let them know that we all have the same problem, that racism is not a, an internal American problem, but racism is an international problem. Racism is a human problem. And racism is a crime that is absolutely so uh, ghastly that a person who is fighting against racism is well within his right to fight against it by any means necessary until it is eliminated. And when you and I can start thinking like that and we get involved in some kind of activity with that kind of liberty, I think we'll get some answers to our problems almost overnight. Thank you.